0: This episode of Edge of Sports is brought to you by Casper Mattresses, an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get fifty dollars off any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com/edge and using promo code EDGE. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. <sighs> We have an unbelievable show this week. We are talking to longtime New York Times sports writer, former ombudsman for ESPN, a man who covered Muhammad Ali back when he was known as Cassius Clay, the author of two of the most classic sports books ever written, The Accidental Sports Writer and Sports World, An American Dreamscape. I am talking about the legendary Robert Lipsight.
1: Muhammad Ali made possible. Joe Namath, Billy Jean. I mean, he kind of opened the way for people to stand up for whatever principles they had. I think that ESPN wanted and needed to get rid of Bill Simmons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Simmons is fun and talented. I don't think he brought real money into the company and ultimately you know espn is totally bottom line trump is the exquisite exemplar of the worst features of jock culture the bullying the domination never say you're sorry never apologize the need to win it's not even enough to win but you have to dominate and stomp the opposition to the ground
0: I started the show by reading to Bob Lipsight his own words, a passage he wrote about the 1969 Super Bowl between the New York Jets and the Baltimore Colts. Well, I got to read this to you. Okay. And just get your reaction to it. Bob Lipsight, this is from something you wrote for the New York Times, January 18th, 1969. It's called Squarely Swinging. Do you remember that? No. Before I say a word, okay. Squarely Swinging by Robert Lipside. Super Bowling, therefore, is limitless in its potential. Are you a fleet footed young crackerjack on the agency team? Well, you might check out the possibility that NBC will raise the price of commercials on AFL games now that a certain parity has been established with the Columbia Broadcasting System and the NFL. Are you a line-busting seminarian concerned lest God is alive but eager to retire and let Broadway Joe Namath take over? Too many people seem to think that Namath, an alleged swinger, will affirm the advertised revolution in contemporary morality. Actually, Namath is a square throwback to the days when boys played poker, drank whiskey, stayed out late, chased girls, talked tough, went after and maintained a demanding and responsible job, and demonstrated loyalty, honesty, sensitivity, and affection? Or are you merely a football fan who would like to see again, and again, and again, how Matt Snell broke through the right side of the Colts' defense, how George Sauer beat Lenny Lyles, how Jerry Philbin and the Rolling Stones jammed up the Baltimore offense, Well, you are going to get a Super Bowl full. There will be one-minute commercials and specials and ads and skywriting and monographs and PhD dissertations and magazine, newspaper, and book analyses that will make Bull Run seem as inconsequential as a football game. And to top it all, American Airlines has announced the showing of the Super Bowl film on flights to California. That, a drink, and a stewardess might just get us all through the patch of chop guaranteed to last until next season.
1: I I hope that guy isn't still writing somewhere.
0: (laughs) But there's so much to unpack there in -hmm. what you wrote. I mean, what did you see in the Super Bowl of 1969 that allowed you to see that it was going to become something far bigger than just this championship game? Because that's what I read in this, the seeds yeah, of but you I mean, I, 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 this I, is going to be huge. I think,
1: Dave, the, the question is, what were all the other guys doing? It was all there. Everything has always been, I mean, that's the beauty of sports. Everything's out there. It's kind of line. it's not like politics or foreign affairs it's very obvious, and the only way, hey, we're in New York, unless they're coming after us. Yeah. <laughs> um, the joy of sports is that you can either really see what's happening and what's going to happen, or you can be you know, willfully delusional and uh, think that uh, this is Never Never Land. It's right. kind of sweaty Oz just for your entertainment.
0: Well, what was it about you in 1969 and so many other times that was able to see it like it was?
1: Well, I think my enormous advantage over everybody else, which still exists, is I don't know anything about sports, Mm. and I never really did. I mean, unlike you, I was not a jock (laughs) growing up. Uh,
0: I was not put jock in quotations. I was not a
1: sports fan. Uh, I know know your jersey still hangs in certain (laughs) gymnasiums around New York City.
0: It's because no one wants to touch uh, it. It smells so
1: bad. I don't know about that. You know, they talk about you up in Rucker. <laughs> but I, I, I think that, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of just thought of myself, still think of myself as just kind of a reporter mm-hmm. uh, who's temporarily assigned to sports.
0: Your secret weapon really wasn't that you weren't a sports fan or knew nothing about sports, although that is a great line. Your, your secret weapon is that unlike most of these sports writers, you actually had a pipeline, a connection, an interest to the very early seedlings of sports sociology.
1: Yeah, and it was also my interest. I mean, I had to do a story early on about the cult of the New York Mets. 1962, brand new baseball expansion team, loses and loses and loses. But the guys covering it, you know, really made this losing kind of epic mm-hmm. because they didn't want this team to leave New York too and go to LA. So I was assigned to do a, a big, you know, quote for the New York Times sociological piece on the cult of the Met fan. And I said, "Who do you call up?" So I called up Margaret Mead, and uh, you know, last big book was. Uh, you know, growing up in Samoa or coming of age in New Guinea. And I was horrified. Not only did she take my call, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, but she went on for hours kind of balancing, you know, the, the cult of the Met fan, you know, against adolescent tribal rights, you know, in Micronesia. Mm. Uh, and there you go.
0: I, it's amazing she took your call. Yeah, except
1: I guess... <laughs> She wanted the publicity,
0: right? Yeah. The power of sports to make that bridge. Yeah. The other part about that little passage I read, which is so striking, is your analysis of Joe Namath, which, you know, most people wrote about him as if he was at the forefront of some kind of revolution because he had sideburns. And you sort of pick that apart and say he's actually very traditional in so many ways. So, who was. The Joe Namath that you were seeing,
1: well, I, I think that he was uh, a neighborhood boy, uh, and I mean, you could have gone to—I mean, he was from uh, mining Pennsylvania, but I mean, you could have gone—you know—into Borough Park, Brooklyn, and found him, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, those guys would—you uh, know—be sleeping around as much as he did if they were cool and good-looking. And, you know, some of them were out there. But they would also respect their mothers, you know, listen to dad, be loyal to the guys, have a faintly rebellious streak, you know, kind of maverick, but fall into line, you know, just as soon as coach uh, or the cop said so.
0: Or the sergeant.
1: Yes, Respectful to authority. I mean, I was a couple of years older and he called me, sir. He was a really very nice guy Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, open and friendly, you know, nice to little kids and old ladies. He he was really everything that you would want. And and remember when he got an enormous amount of publicity because he opened a bar in New York called Bachelor's Three, which the NFL discovered was, you know, mob up. Mm-hmm. They told him, divest to yourself or you can't play football. And he, you know, moaned and talked about being loyal to his partners and leaving football. And then he, you know, he caved in and gave up the bar.
0: Wow. Did did your experience uh, around Muhammad Ali give you a bit of a sense of the difference between like what a real rebel looks like and what a sort of made for TV rebel looks like? Did it, is that what maybe helped you divine? I think, that Joe I, I think maybe that did. Unless not, not a revolutionary. Yeah,
1: and I mean you you made a very good side point there. Is that uh, Muhammad Ali made possible mm. uh, Joe Namath? Billie Jean, came. I mean, he, he kind of opened the way for people to stand up for whatever principles they had if it was just, you know, as, as kind of narrow as, you know, a drink before a big game for Namath. And remember, Namath never stayed out all night chasing tail. Namath, usually accompanied, got to bed early before a game. So, you know, kind of Namath was not really quite the, the swinging, out of control playboy that was fun to write about.
0: Yeah, in a lot of ways, his, his knees probably hurt too much to stay out yeah. all night too. <laughs> right, a su- subtle part of it.
1: Yeah, he was on his back all the time.
0: Yeah, and not in the. Moving on. Um, so I, I know there's no one in sports you're more associated with than Muhammad Ali, and I know you're probably beyond tired of talking about him, but I, I want you to indulge me with this one question because. Uh, I think it's such an interesting sports writing question. You covered the fight of the century, Ali Frazier, Madison Square Garden, Ali put on his back by Joe Frazier. But that fight also led you to stop covering Muhammad Ali after you basically owned the Ali beat for a decade. Now, can you speak a little bit about why you made that decision? Well, not
1: only not covering him, but leaving daily journalism. I left the paper. Wow. Um, I was writing a column. My job that night was to sit at ringside with a telephone and report back to the desk, you know, a few blocks away, what was happening in the fight so that they could be prepared with the headline and replay the story. And in the beginning, it was just, you know, he moved, she, you know, Joe moved. But <laughs> then I got into it. And by the second round, I was into a blow by blow. And so they patched me all through the Times building with my play-by-play and and probably illegally uh, into the Times Square area. So unbeknownst to me, I had this incredible audience. And I found out afterwards that everybody who heard my, quote, broadcast believed that Muhammad Ali had won the fight big and had been robbed of the decision, and it occurred to me that you know I was no objective reporter anymore at ringside. There, I was so emotionally involved with Muhammad Ali that every time he lifted his hand, I, I saw a punch landing. Wow! Uh, and I, I realized then that you know I really had to get out now. That it was it was time to stop doing this.
0: But there were reporters across the landscape who were biased around the question of Ali, either for him or against him, certainly early in his career, yeah, trashing him later. I started
1: at the New York Times when I was 19 years old, and that was really the only cult or institution or body of uh, ethics or morality that I ever had that really sank in. So I really, I believed all that stuff. Uh, I don't know about objectivity, but certainly about, you know, fairness and uh, being incorruptible and journalism as a calling. I mean, it, it, it sounds naive now, perhaps, but um, it was important to me then.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't sound naive. It sounds admirable, but it also sounds like a decision that perhaps only— very few people would have made given a st- similar well, circumstance. Yes. And
1: and it's not because of me, it's because like it or not, I was at an institution that would back me. I mean, when I, when I started reporting for the New York Times and going on, you know, long baseball or basketball trips with the team, the Times paid for everything. But my fellow journalists on other papers, particularly in New York, got per diem from the club for their food, uh, their transportation and lodgings was paid for. There was a a limit to how far they could go in being critical of the hand that was feeding them. It was tough. It was easy at the times. You know, I mean, when when Madison Square Garden asked the Times to take me off the boxing beat, the Times was thrilled. You know, Mm. ah, it's too tough for you. You know, if it happened to the poor guy at the post, he'd be back covering high school sports.
0: Mm. Now, the decision you made, though, this, this ethical decision, that meant that you missed Zaire. It meant that you missed Manila. Just, I didn't know that then. I know, but I'm just saying, like, in retrospect, any well, part no, of you well, yeah. regret it?
1: In retrospect, I regret having missed uh, those fights. I don't regret the life that I had During that period, I'm really glad the way things turned out. You know, if if your station had sent me to cover those events, I would have gone in a minute and been very happy. But the the short answer is no.
0: No regrets?
1: No, I mean, because I like the way things turned out.
0: And the other question on this question of regrets is um, and what you did or didn't do. I mean, uh, your son, Sam, I mean, was he... You you didn't you weren't a big fan of like taking him to I'm sure you could have gotten like free tickets. He still talks. you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he does. He probably told you. Well, well, it's so I was doing like an interesting, um, it's interesting compare and contrast of two people I admire greatly, and that one is you, and the other is Dick Shap. And Dick would be like take Jeremy to all these things and whatnot, and and Sam was like that, my dad thought that would be ethic, ethically compromise him. And, yeah, and, and it's but. I just want to know your, your thoughts about that.
1: Well, I, I think that um, I I think I could have been, in retrospect, I think I could have been more relaxed about it. I could have taken the kids to more things. My, my wife, you know, still complains. The only she, I took her to one World Series games and paid paid for it, but... Um, <laughs> you didn't get comped. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I think in, in many ways I was rigid and uptight, I... I Somehow didn't, maybe I didn't trust myself. I don't know. Uh, I didn't want to be beholden to these guys. I wanted to be free to write whatever I wanted. I didn't want to be bullied or intimidated. And and, and I think I went too far.
0: That's powerful because I think a lot of people in media today— wrestle with that very question because that question of the insider and the outsider right. has become even more pronounced. You have great journalists who are now working for NBA.com, NFL.com. I mean, would you ever have taken a job directly for a league to do journalism for them? I don't know. It was never,
1: you know, in in my time. It's hard to think about it, but, you know— What do you think of it conceptually? I, 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 think, I think, you know, I, I think I've come to the point where I think that everybody— has to make their own decisions on this and how far and uh, comfortable i mean I've known White House reporters you know when, when they get drunk they'll <laughs> you, you'll find out that um, maybe they pulled their punches just a little bit because they wanted to be sure that their kids were invited to the Easter egg hunt in the rose garden you know yeah, and um hey. I don't know. I, I, I think that uh, as time goes on, I feel less comfortable uh, being moralistic. Uh, and I think that certainly over the years that you know, I was more rigid than I had to be.
0: Wow. We'll be back with Bob Lipsight in 60 seconds, including what he learned about ESPN through being its ombudsman. But first, a quick word from Casper Mattresses. So we're recording this episode of Edge of Sports here in New York City at my mom's house. When I'm at my mom's, I sleep on the sofa bed and I wake up very cranky with my back feeling like it's been through the ringer. My mom sleeps on a Casper mattress and she wakes up feeling awesome. I want to get a Casper mattress and I'm looking at this deal and it's too good to pass up. You get a risk-free trial and return policy. You can sleep on it for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. These mattresses are made in these here United States and it's just $500 for a twin size mattress and $950 for king size. And if you compare that to industry averages, that's an outstanding price point for a mattress of this quality. You could get $50 off any mattress purchase by going to www www.casper.com slash edge and using edge as a promo code and when you support Casper Mattresses you know what else you're doing you're supporting the Edge of Sports podcast you were by far the most impactful ombudsman that ESPN ever had some would say a moralistic ombudsman some would say a very welcome moralistic that people were were desperate yeah. for that and I think if you ask folks who have been the ombudsman for ESPN. It might be a list of one in terms of people who they actually remembered writing critically mm-hmm. of ESPN's coverage, the list of one, Bob Lipsight. Um You, of course, had a relationship with ESPN before becoming— Well, that, you
1: know, that's not entirely fair. I think that Leanne Schreiber wrote some very good columns. She was the number two ombudsman.
0: And you were number three? Five. Number five. Five, yeah. Okay, so we'll go with a shout-out to Leanne Schreiber. Yeah, And maybe we remember you more indelibly because of the actual issues you had to face when you were there. I mean, big, high-profile stuff, like the NFL and ESPN pulling out of the the documentary for PBS, League of Denial, uh, the article on Grantland, which arguably led to a trans woman's suicide. I mean, really, really intense stuff that went way beyond the sports page. The bigger question, though, is... You were very familiar with ESPN before taking the job. How did your experience there impact or change your view of the worldwide leader?
1: Well, I had a very positive attitude towards the people who worked there, energetic, smart, devoted. They were like Senate staff policy wonks, except their policy all had to do with sports instead of legislation and uh, you know, uh, public affairs. And they, they took their work very seriously, although I couldn't always be serious about you know who was better, Babe Ruth or Michael Jordan. But what I I guess I wasn't totally ready for was being for the very first time in my career in the belly of the beast. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it was like working for a ball club. Mm-hmm. It was really like seeing how things work and seeing how the sausage gets made. Yeah, you know, advertising uh, standards changed overnight. You know, when they felt any kind of threat commercially, I mean, their their relationship with the NFL you know, is uh, probably too complex to tease out.
0: <laughs> and it, it, but that that experience of being on the inside, it it sounds like you're saying it showed you just how sensitive the advertising concerns yeah. are. Yeah, I mean, I I really I'm,
1: I'm really glad I did it. A year and a half was enough. Yeah. I wouldn't do it again. Uh, but it was it was fascinating.
0: You know, years before you took that job, uh, you and I had a conversation about ESPN, mm-hmm. and I, I remember saying to you, like, oh, I you know I work for the Nation. I don't know about ESPN. If they ever knocked on my door, and you said to me, to turn down a job offer from ESPN is like turning down a contract from the Yankees. You just don't do it, right? Do you still feel that way? Sure. Buzz- yeah, good?
1: sure. I mean, uh, they're. Uh, I, I think that they are America's most important media window on sports. And I think a chance to be there uh, with their resources and even with the possibility of making you know, some of your feelings and sensibilities current would be great.
0: And did your time there, did it, did it, do you think it made them angry, some of the things you wrote? And do you care? Um, Did you burn any bridges from no, the experience? No, no.
1: I mean, that, that, that was the job. Mm-hmm. And um, they seemed pretty serious going in that they really wanted me. I mean, they used these phrases like you know, being a moral nudge uh, mm-hmm. and having impact and you know, teaching. All, all these things really pumped me up. I really thought they were serious. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think some of them really were angry mm-hmm. at the end and and some thought it was a good thing. And ultimately, I don't think it had much effect at
0: all. You don't think it had much effect at no. all? Really? Really. You don't think you changed the culture there at all? Oh, no. Not even a little bit? No. Well, I don't know if that's right. I th- and, then, they- and then maybe
1: anybody, forget about changing the culture, maybe anybody who might have started you know, thinking a little bit Well, have probably been purged in their layoffs in the last year or two.
0: Yeah. The layoffs thing is an interesting question. I mean, one of the, I suppose, subtle impacts you had really was the relationship with their biggest star, Bill Simmons, because he, and I'm not, I'm not mentioning Bill Simmons gratuitously uh, just to mention Bill Simmons, but you had critiques of how Bill Simmons ran Grantland and He would reference them constantly in tweets, like almost like he couldn't let go of what. So clearly, your words had weight with him, and clearly, they made him angry, and clearly, it was part of the souring of the relationship he had with them.
1: Well, I mean, uh, a couple of times, uh, Bill warned ESPN that it was just this kind of criticism from people like Lipsight that would lead him to leave. But I, I think that ESPN wanted and needed to get rid of Bill Simmons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Simmons was, on the one hand, is um, you know, he's fun and talented. I don't think he brought real money into the company. And ultimately, you know, ESPN is totally bottom line. And you know, I've never been. I've been a lot of places. I've never been in a place before where somebody would roll their eyes and say, oh, the shareholders are going to love this. <laughs> and, and, and they talked like that at ESPN. And, and they really were thinking about Disney shareholders. So, you know, Grantland was kind of a uh, boutique indulgence in many ways. And it'll be interesting to see how the, the, the new site, Ringer, uh, works out. It's, Bill is smart, and he has a really good people. Uh, but Bill is also... Bills also kind of one of those traditional bad boys who uh coaches love you know because yeah he's he's hard to handle but I can handle him that's why the, the Terrell always, all, all those guys always will get jobs uh because uh, they're kind of exciting so
0: he's a, a talented diva wide receiver is what you're saying yeah yeah
1: that's that's a good way of putting it
0: uh, it, it the the other ESPN story which I find So fascinating is Because it's connected to My politics and the politics we do on this show Is the undefeated Because like in theory The idea of ESPN having A space to talk About black politics through the lens Of sports or sports through the lens of black Politics it's an audacious And very interesting idea It's the sort of thing that you Think could be successful if done The right way and it has been now years in the incubation stage. Why has it been so tortured to hire half a dozen writers and have them put up some copy and slap it up on a website?
1: It's unfortunate. It was uh, it was early on the passion of John Skipper, whom I admire for a lot of things. He's the
0: head of ESPN. Yes, yeah.
1: and his own upbringing in the segregated South where he still feels ashamed as a kid, you know, sitting at the white side of a Woolworth's lunch counter and looking through the kitchen at African-Americans on the other side. He really, he talks about that. Uh, And he thought it would be a great idea. Uh, Most people of power at ESPN did not think it was a great idea. And even some smart and enlightened people at ESPN thought, well, if we're really so dedicated— to this kind of coverage, why can't we infuse it throughout the entire ESPN report? The same way that we, you know, ghettoize women, why would we want to ghettoize people of color? So, I, I mean, there were a lot of reasons that people were not interested, and then, as they often do in, in big media places where, you know, big white guys, like coaches and general managers and uh, make big decisions, they, they reach out for the wrong person. Now, I I happen to enjoy reading Jason Whitlock, and I consider him a friend, but I'm not so sure that management is his strong suit or being an editor. And so putting it in his hands, I think, really set it back in a lot of ways. And I think that now uh, there really isn't the kind of, you know, energy or excitement over the undefeated that there was early on.
0: Can I say that like, it would take only the most superficial knowledge of the sports writing scene to know that th- a young cadre of black sports writers would not want to attach themselves to Jason Whitlock's yeah. brand, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, they especially
1: didn't. since, since you know, there are you know, even though it's denied all the time, there are plenty of talented you know uh, editors of color throughout the media and many of them, you know, kind of hidden away, but you know, you can go find them.
0: Yeah. And they, they have a, a guy now who's very respected, uh, Merida, mm-hmm. um, who's going to head up. Right. There's the site. And, and, and it raised, but it raises the question though, again, about like, they still don't have a start date and they actually now have writers. I mean, right. what, why is this so tortured? It, it, I, uh, the shareholder question makes me wonder. They don't want you to also, do it. Yeah, you can't, they don't want to do it. You can't have a, a black politics yeah. sports site that's not controversial, yeah. that isn't going to yeah, raise but hackles.
1: I'm not so sure that it's a, a, a moneymaker. I mean, if you're interested in a black audience, and they are very much so interested in a black audience, their idea, and they are right, is what they call the barbershop shows. And mm-hmm. uh, now we're talking about, you know, First Take, maybe Around the Horn, These shows that kind of capitulate a bunch of guys sitting around in a barbershop or a bar kind of ranking on each other and talking sports.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned something before about ghettoizing, and this is another big debate in sports media right now, is are things like ESPNW or getting a site like The Undefeated, how do you... Assess that on the balance sheet. Because, on the one hand, you are creating this space for women sports fans, for women writers to develop. But on the other hand, you are creating this separate space, which just feeds the idea that it's something apart from sports. Because it's not like they're like men's sports, women's sports. It's sports and women's sports.
1: You're exactly right. And I mean, I think that the effort has to be made. uh, And more and more media uh, are doing it of uh, integrating. Yeah. It into the general report. Sometimes in the Times, they say, you know, Connecticut's basketball team wins. I have to read the story to see whether it's the men or the women. Mm-hmm. And I, somehow that seems progressive
0: to me. <laughs> I've always been curious because you, you write so clearly about Ali. And I got to ask you, like, the non Ali edition of this question, as far as what is the most indelible. Memory you have as a sports reporter. I have a
1: lot of indelible memories, but I guess if I had to pick one, and I'm not sure that we have to say it's the non Ali one. I think it's the one is um, I I had come to cover and really like when I was covering boxing uh, a Nigerian fighter named Dick Tiger, um, and uh, he won the uh, welterweight and middleweight. Titles, he fought as a light heavyweight. He was really, he was a kind of an honest workman, a banger. And he would come from Nigeria for a couple of times a year, um, buy a lot of clothes with his prize money. all his clothes were ridiculously tight. And he would wear a bowler hat that was too small. And you had to get to know him really well. And I spent a lot of time with him, I really loved him, uh, to find out that he was buying clothes for his brothers. We were all, of course, a little smaller oh. than he was because he was so muscular and all. Oh. And, and he was just a, a, a wonderful guy. And in summer of '68, he was very upset because he was uh, an, of the Igbo tribe who were being uh, uh, you know, wiped out in the Biafran War. He brought me photographs of, uh, and they may have been British made planes. Uh, from the Nigerian side, you know, bombing his villages and all. And I, I, the, the Times was not interested in this information from a sports writer and a boxer. So it took a while before they actually caught up to things. But wow. then in, in November— So a in,
0: sports writer— and a boxer named Dick Tiger yeah. were breaking a story about war crimes yeah. to the New York Times. <laughs> well,
1: well, we'll we'll wait until our African correspondents, you know, get there. Wow. So, but the indelible memory was in November of 1969. He had decided to return his medal, member of the British Empire, to the Queen in. Um, protest of Britain's support of the Nigerians against the Biafrans in this genocidal war. And he asked me to help him. And I'm kind of torn a little bit, but I was a columnist by that time. And I thought, newly minted, and I thought, well, a columnist can do this, you know. And I just remember the two of us wrapping the medal, taping it up, finding the right address— Uh, going to the main post office in New York and mailing it to the queen in his protest. And um, the clerk said, uh, was filling out some forms, and said, so uh, what's this worth? And Dick thought for a moment, and he said, well, I don't know, maybe $50, $100. And the clerk stamped, no value. Mm. and then kind of threw the package in. And then, you know, Dick and I walked out of the post office. And it wasn't long after that that his boxing career was over. He became a museum guard in New York and soon died of liver cancer. But uh, that's, you know, I don't know why. That's my most indelible memory.
0: Wow. That's a hell of an indelible memory. Yeah,
1: I mean, just to be part of, you know, somebody... He was so wrenched and so in pain, uh, and his people were being destroyed.
0: Actually, I was thinking about you when I was covering Brazil and the World Cup, and the police started to shoot live ammo over. The police basically tear gassed themselves. Like, they shot tear gas into a crowd where the police already were. And these police officers, with gas in their eyes, they took out their guns and started firing them. And it was one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen because they were utterly yeah. disoriented. It wasn't yeah. like the the cold mechanistic were yeah. going after you. It was a very scared 25-year-old Brazilian with a gun and a badge. Yeah. And it made me think about you because I, I was wondering if you ever found yourself in a situation where you actually felt physically unsafe.
1: Yeah, I mean, there have been you know, lo- actually lots of times. Uh, you know, I was not comfortable in Nicaragua. Uh, I was not comfortable in Mexico. Uh, I was not comfortable in Madison Square Garden, diving under the ring.
0: Why were you diving under the ring?
1: Oh, because uh, people were throwing bottles. It was one of those black-white fights. And they, you know, actually it wasn't black-white, it was black Puerto Rican. Mm. And and they didn't like uh, the outcome. And and I've been shot at on an Indian, but there was only one time when I really, really feared for my life. This was in the Ali years, and I had covered the congressional investigations of boxing, and I had written a strong moralistic column that a Las Vegas gambler named Ash Resnick should be banned from boxing. You know, and I described him, you know, um, this big, handsome, evil criminal you know, who is really controlling boxers for Frankie Carbo behind. I just kind of went on and on. And, um, you know, it was printed. And I was in Vegas a couple of months later for a fight. And being cheap, even with an expense account, being cheap, instead of using uh, valet parking— I parked my car in the parking lot of one of the big casino hotels and walked all the way through the cars to the entrance. Nothing was, good
0: ever happens in parking I, lots.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> and this was late at night. And suddenly, two goons, which materialized, threw me up against a car, held me. And this third goon, came, and it was Ash Resnick. And he leaned right into me, and he said, handsome, huh? It tapped my cheek and walked away.
0: Oh, jeez.
1: And it was like a really good lesson. You can say anything you want about anybody as long as you mention somewhere that he's good
0: looking. (laughs) Ah, But
1: I was really scared for a moment
0: <sighs> yeah. there. Jeez, that, that's intense. But you also, you, you mentioned being shot at, was it on an Indian reservation?
1: Yeah, that? but um, as it was kind of a little civil war between two sects, two sides within a tribe. It's on Pine Ridge? Uh, no, no, in, in Onondaga in upstate New York. It was a fight over casino rights and the more traditional Indians didn't want the casino and the upstart Indians who also ran cigarette smuggling and it did. And a shot was fired and the Indian I was interviewed said, don't worry about it. They're Indians. If they wanted to, they would have hit you.
0: Wow. The warning shot <laughs> in Onondaga. That's, of course, my mind goes to Chief Oren Lyons, who is the um, the goalie for Jim Brown Syracuse Absolutely. team. And, uh, he's
1: my man, and he was the one who said it.
0: Wow, that was Oren Lyons, so yeah. Jim Brown's goalie at Syracuse right. was there saying to, saying it to you. That that that's that's remarkable. You once said to me that um, you felt like Billie Jean King was the athlete of the 20th century. Not Muhammad Ali. In fact, you said to me you didn't think it was even close. And it's pretty rare to find somebody, particularly the Ali contemporaries who tend to put him up on this tremendous pedestal. Pretty rare to find people who would say that. So I wanted to give you the chance to elucidate on that opinion. Uh,
1: And then you can knock it down. (laughs) Um, I might not. For starters, let's agree that Billie Jean represents half- the people in the world, okay? Okay. So not only did she open doors to women's participation in sports, but almost an equivalent, she opened the door to the end of amateurism and the beginning of understanding that athletes were professional, no matter you know what they played, Olympians, golf, tennis, particularly tennis is where, of course, she made the first inroads, and that this kind of plantation-like control of paying athletes under the table, as they did in the Olympics and tennis, was a way of enslaving them and not giving them a chance to really take control of their own lives and uh, go on. Third of all, which really never went anywhere, was this concept of hers of world team tennis. Now, this, this was a, you know, a wonderful notion in which small groups of professional players, you know, the, the Boston lobsters, you know, would, would travel in circuits. And not only would they play their little games in local arenas, but then they would give clinics for old people, kids, anybody— uh, and leave behind tennis leagues, much like bowling leagues of its time, to begin a kind of grassroots movement in tennis. I, I thought that this was enormously exciting. Not that It exists in a small way. Not much came of it because just when it could have come to fruition, uh, she was involved in that famous palimony suit. And once she was identified as a lesbian, all her corporations walked away. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, taken her so many years to climb back.
0: And it may not have been voluntary, but that was another m- trailblazing moment where people like Martina have certainly mentioned yeah. that seeing that Billie Jean King was part of the LGBT community made it easier for her to come out. So that that is another area of influence. No, I,
1: I, I think that Billie Jean was cautious. She really came from you know, her dad was a fireman, her yeah, mother was a Working tuberous, class background, yeah. yeah. And uh, in Southern California, and it was all, you know, very embarrassed. She was very much closeted. So, you know, her coming out as a feminist mm-hmm. was really peeling an onion. Uh, I mean, she was outed as having had an abortion by Ms. Magazine when all she really was willing to say was she supported the right of people to have an abortion. And, um, you know, and she went to great lengths on the tour to talk constantly about the great sex that she had with her husband, Larry, and how wonderful and tight they were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which in retrospect, I always thought was a shame not only for her development, but, you know, for all those, you know, young marrieds. You know, two career people who didn't understand why as hard as they tried, you know, they hardly could get together and never had great sex. <laughs> C-
0: creates a, a, an unrealistic uh, template yeah. for people who are exhausted in the evening. There, there's an interesting current moment right now. I mean, you you mentioned about amateurism and getting beyond amateurism. And today, it's like you really have to be, I think, a solid reactionary. To say that the NCAA system is somehow just and that the players are treated fairly and somehow it's right for Mike Krzyzewski to make $10 million a year while, you know, the players obviously get to have insane travel schedules and not choose the classes they want, let alone issues of salary and health care. Was this something though that you saw, like in the sixties, seventies, the seedlings of it, even when the money was much less? Or is this something that's only become apparent? It, to you it made no difference that the years? money was
1: less. It was still very obvious. You I saw mean, it at the time. Well, and, yeah, and then you know the beginning of things is when there were like Thursday night basketball games. I mean, that, you know, everybody has a has a quiz on Friday. <laughs> You know, well, it was very obvious. The the thing the, the thing that really snapped it even more than that was, and I think this happens to everybody, the first time you go to a Final Four, you know, if you're not blind in some way, you look down at the floor and there are nine black guys playing basketball. And they come, these nine black guys, from two universities that have something like 5 or 6% population of people of color, including women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and
0: in many cases, including Latinos. Exactly. Yeah. Samoans. Yeah.
1: Um, so you look at it and say, hmm, is this a
0: gladiatorial
1: class? I mean, what, what's going on here? So, you know, you might write it at your first Final Four. And then your second Final Four, you write it, And people are saying, you know, why are you harping on that? And then if you write it on your third Final Four, you might be covering high school sports. (laughs) Um, I I think that uh, it's very hard, particularly in places where the university is important to the town, to the town where the... Newspaper or radio or television station is located to you know keep banging on this, and I think reporters, you know, stop doing it. So I mean, I think it's been obvious to anybody for many many years, and it's only now coming out because because now you can cover the lawsuit, Mm. and and nobody can say, hey, you know, why you harping harping on on this. Now, there's a lawsuit out there, right? And and you can you can cover that in some sort of fair way, and and that's, in many ways that's really kind of what you need. You need some sort of uh, legal action.
0: What was your uh, gut reaction when the Missouri players said? I had that they mixed feelings play? about that. Talk to us.
1: Yeah, on the one hand, I thought it was great that athletes were standing up in much the way that campus activists who had really set the stage and the scene for it and took. The early blows. That was great. On the other hand, I started thinking, wow, behind the power of a $4 million a year coach, they can unseat a $400,000 a year president. Now, if this really is honest grassroots people reaction, cool. I'm not so sure it is. I think that there's also an element there that so many universities are athletic departments with adjunct classes attached. You know, we want, the football team wants a university it can be proud of. Uh, (laughs) So I I, I think that we have to be a little wary of the idea that uh, anything that comes out of um, the power of the athletic department may not be in the best interest of higher education and the rest of us.
0: And it, it's one of those, like, be careful what you wish for, because a lot of I know a lot of folks have written stories over the years that if only players, who we often only talk about through the lens of exploitation, if only they actually asserted their economic power, their labor power, you could bring some justice to the NCAA.
1: Except that, as you have pointed out, as surely as anybody else, that players, pretty much like their coaches and their owners, tend to be very right wing. And so if you want these basically conservative people, you know, wielding great political power, you know, I'm not so sure. I mean, Carlos and Tommy Smith and Harry Edwards and Muhammad Ali, you know, that, that's one thing. Everybody else, you yeah, better be careful.
0: No, no I, I and I do hear what you're saying there. I, I think um, in this particular case— you had what was basically a strike against racism at a school with historic racism. And it was one of those things, as you said, where the activist community connected with the football mm-hmm. program and operated it that way. And they even made the, the new coach sign a contract saying he would not support any strike among players. Like, they really turned the screws when it was all done. I mean, I think this sort of thing gives these university presidents night sweats because they've already... In so many schools, turn the athletic department into the real power at the schools. Like that's already there. That's right. And so it's like if it's going to have that much power, and if higher education is just going to be this thing that you do in between games.
1: <laughs> well, so somebody has recently floated the idea, which I kind like, of like, of making football a uh, accredited major huh. at universities. And so I mean, you would have to you know do the courses, maybe yeah. even some you know health courses on concussion care and uh, but I kind of like that idea. I mean, I think about music majors, theater sure. majors, um, you know there's a lot of possibilities in there, and think start thinking about the athletic department as a kind of conservatory uh, maybe that would be more honest in some ways.
0: I think so. I think anything like, that makes like it more honest. It's like decriminalizing
1: marijuana. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anything that makes it more honest, I am mm-hmm. for. Um, I wanted to ask you about ch- how changes in technology have changed sports writing over the last 50 years and what you think is really has really been the most decisive change in how people cover sports. Whether you th- And the two big pivots to me are cable TV and social media. Maybe well, you yeah, think of other pivots. But. Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean— um,
0: And is it for the for better or for worse? I'm sure the answer is somewhere in between, but I'd love to know where you see the answer lying. It's
1: different. I mean, I, I, it's hard to say better or worse because there was so much bad journalism 50 years ago, and there's so much bad journalism now. I think that Twitter is really kind of running sports. Everybody, except me, <laughs> is is— I'm too I'm too uh, reactive I'm, and I don't trust myself on, on Twitter yeah um, I'd be in trouble very quickly I, I think that um, most and, and this is you know what I learned at ESPN most of um, Twitter is speculative transactional you know Dave iron is going to be you know traded to Fox
0: News right
1: <laughs> um,
0: it's brutal. I need a better agent. Yeah.
1: And it begins the churn, and then somebody writes a blog about it, and then somebody writes a story about it. And then the New York Times has a big piece about the social you know, media kerfuffle over you know, Dave going to Fox News and why it was a joke in the first place. And everybody has had a day's worth of copy. It would be great. And it's you know it's silly and it's probably um, meaningless.
0: Uh, and isn't that the biggest difference, though, the fact that it's now this kind of twenty-four hour beast that exists, whether or not there's twenty-four hours worth of news no, to cover?
1: No, the big the big change is if you want to make the change, and it's certainly been gradual, but I think it's you know the bookends are locked in. You know when I started. We had total access, athletes, coaches, owners. Just walk into the dressing room anytime you want. Talk to them. Hang out with them. My memory of the third Super Bowl was um, having trouble getting to Joe Namath the day before the Super Bowl because of all the kids and old women Surrounding his lawn chair At the hotel pool (laughs) I had to push all these people away Who wanted autographs So I could get my interview With Joe Namath
0: Wow And Um, and now the kids have become Talent managers and agents And and, and bodyguards And they they
1: need They need to be gatekeeped in But The trade-off For that kind of access Was the covenant That what you see here stays here. I mean, um, and, and these are true stories. The, the manager's girlfriend goes out the window uh, of his hotel. That's not a story. The ball players have a fight on the plane, and we're on the plane. It's not a story. Um, you know, everybody goes upstairs uh, from the lobby with a woman they are not currently married to. That is not a story. Now, it's adversarial. It's open season. Right. But it's really hard to get the story because as if this was, you know, the quarterback is no George Clooney. You have to go through how many layers of PR people, agents, managers, etc., to get a sanitized and carefully observed 20 minutes.
0: What do you think of something like the Players' Tribune?
1: I, I think it's hilarious that Derek Jeter, who was in his 20 years the worst interview in the media, <laughs> he never said anything worth printing, is now a media mogul. You know, I, I think the Players' Tribune it does a really good job because obviously they have hired really fine journalists, The editor is a really fine former ESPN, the magazine founder, and uh, they kind of craft these warm and fuzzy inside stories by athletes. It's really, it's like, it's a PR release for individual athletes and teams. But I think that as more and more uh, athletes, teams, and leagues are tweeting, are blogging, have their own websites, uh, are breaking their own stories. It becomes harder and harder uh, for the media unless they're willing to become really adversarial and investigative.
0: Yeah, which requires funds, which requires resources.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's why that's why ESPN is so important. It's one of the and, and they have, you know, one of the really finest investigative teams on the planet who don't write all that much and, unfortunately, don't write all that deeply these days. But uh, they, the New York Times, a few other places uh,
0: that can do it. Yeah, that's still something that um, I think about is uh, when you were done as ombudsman at ESPN, you wrote this terrific autopsy of the experience for The Nation magazine. And you didn't include a line in it just saying, there are great investigative journalists at ESPN, particularly at Outside the Lines. You know, one line, 50 words. And these I've heard, I heard so much from these guys. Yeah. They were so angry.
1: I was grateful to you for letting me add that later. I really was. Because that was my mistake. I think that in some ways I dissed them. And I dissed them unfairly. But the terrible truth is that uh, their impact is really much less... Then the day after day after day, waves and waves of standard jock culture that we get out of ESPN. You know, OTL is a very nice program. I don't know how many people watch it. They're inordinately proud of it. And this is a terrible thing to say, but it, I have this 60s flashback. There was a book called "The Spook Who Sat by the Door."
0: I love that movie. I've never seen the. I've yeah. never read the book.
1: Yeah, and so the idea was, you know, you hire a person of color, where he or she is totally visible to anybody who passes by, and then if you're criticized at all, you say, "Oh, we got one." Mm-hmm. And I, I think, in some ways, uh, outside the lines, great program
0: is the Spook Who Sat but by it's the Door.
1: Aberrational. Mm. Yeah, it's the only one and the investigative team fabulous investigative team you know um, turn them loose more
0: and I think they would say the trade-off is that when they do drop something it has so much more impact than if they were writing for say the San Francisco Chronicle and it, it gets it, yeah, the, but, you know, the, the signal if the you will the concussion
1: story was broken by the New York Times let's not forget that uh, a little boy named Alan Schwartz
0: that's true. My most indelible sports memory is as a fan, because I happen to be like a preteen at game six of the 86 World Series when the ball goes through Buckner's legs, and the mayhem and got very scary, actually. It was mm-hmm. like, went. For, I'll never forget that feeling of being thrilled and then being terrified in the span of 10 seconds, yeah. and uh, seeing these adults act in such a way that yeah. I'd never experienced. You recently emailed me that you were digging through some crates and you came up with your notes from game six of 86. And I was curious what those notes said and what your observations were. It was
1: crazy because um, I had just arrived at NBC News. They had created a new position, a network correspondent specializing in sports. I I wasn't in the sports department. The president of the NBC who came up with this Wonderful idea. was we soon fired. <laughs> and I left soon after that. So they asked me, how would you like to cover the World Series this year? And I said, I'd like to cover it from Nicaragua, because that's when their baseball season opens. I had found out that Sandinistas were pirating the NBC signal and uh, were in very posh hotels watching the games. And they had also pirated the radio signal and, and were selling – uh, Nicaraguan commercials in between. I thought, wow, what insight! And then the opening of the season—that is amazing. By the the way. Open, the, I, actually, I wrote that for the Nation. Uh, <laughs> and at, and they, uh, the opening of the season, they had little parachutes with American flags come down because remember they had shot down the American. Okay, so I went there, and after a couple of you know stories that I filed from Nicaragua. Cooler heads prevailed, and they said, you have to come back right now. I mean, you're the sports correspondent. You have to cover the World Series. I came back just in time for that sixth game to watch the ball go through poor Buckner's legs. You know, great athlete. He wanted the ball. He wanted to help his team. He was willing to die trying. So the next morning, the only people who got in to see him was me because NBC was showing, showing the, the World, World series. series. Yeah, and they, they didn't know the difference between, you know, I guess the Red Sox didn't know the difference between NBC Sports and NBC News. So I had, you know, this long sit down with Buckner. And I started slowly, you know, how do you feel about the seventh game coming up? And oh, yeah, I'm ready to go and we're going to get him. And there's a little setback and on and on and on. And finally I said, so, um, How'd you feel when the ball went through your legs?
0: I mean, how do you not ask that? Yeah.
1: <laughs> and and he, he's kind of appalled. And he said, Well, I, I don't think about it. Athletes can't think about stuff like that. You know, it'll hold you back. You've got to put it out of your mind and go ahead. But, but how do you, you, know, and I kept hammering him. You know, I, I had my interview already. I didn't care anymore. Uh, I wanted to see where this would go. And I kept hammering him about how do you feel? You know, uh, you let the team down. You know, what, what was your feeling when it went through you? I mean, just on and on and on. And, and it, it was very embarrassing and it was very awkward. And Henny answered in some sort of clumsy way. And then the interview was over. He took it off. He gets right up. He turns around, starts walking to the door. Then he turns around and he said, you know, this should be a lesson for you. That's no way. To talk to an athlete I would never have done this interview If I thought you were going to ask me About what happened In the game last night He said, You can only think ahead And I hope As you continue your career If you have a career uh, That you know, you know How to properly talk to athletes And how to approach them In moments like this And then he walked off I thought wow I really liked him for That and remember years, <laughs> you, you yeah, liked I him thought, for yeah, that. yeah. I mean, it was stand-up guy. Years later, I called him up. He was living, I guess, in Idaho or something like that. And, yeah. you know, I reminded him of it all, and you know, I didn't. He didn't retract anything, but he was, you know, really very nice. And now I hear the last I heard, I was at the Yogi Bearer Museum, and it was there's a porch, in the back of the Yogi, the lovely little museum, uh, on the grounds of Montclair State College in New Jersey. And from the porch in the back, you can look down to a wonderful little independent league ball field. And um, I had this feeling because the, I don't know, the Idaho Buccaneer, whoever, had just left town with their manager, Bill Buckner. And I thought, ah, he's still out there, still giving lessons. He was He was a gamer.
0: He was a gamer. uh, That there's no question. Last question for you. I'd be like journalistic malpractice if I didn't ask you this because you're a New Yorker of utterly legitimate standing. You've followed politics for decades and decades. And right now you are in the midst of a real – New York Democratic primary race for the first time since 1968. They're having political rallies for president in the South Bronx. You haven't seen that since before I was born, for goodness sakes. And I would love your read on whether or not you think this is Sanders country or Hillary country and where you fall on this question.
1: I don't really know. I mean, uh, unfortunately, what's overarching everything is that it not be Trump country. Trump is the exquisite exemplar, I think, of the worst features of jock culture. The bullying, the domination, the need to win, never say you're sorry, never apologize. It's not even enough to win, but you have to dominate and stomp the opposition to the ground. And of course, Trump's genius is that he really doesn't have an ideology? You know, I, I've covered him a number of times, and I was always amazed at his read so quickly. I guess it's emotional intelligence. I, I don't. Know. I guess narcissists have a certain kind of empathy. I could write, look at you, and say, Dave Siren, socialist, bleeding heart. I know exactly what he wants, and I will tailor my answer. And he would do that. And, and who knew that he could also do that to crowds? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, he's, he's, a, he's not the biggest danger out there, but he's right up at the top. The other question is, I would like Bernie Sanders to be president of the United States. Would he be a good president? Would he be able to function? Would he be able to control Congress? I don't know. But something tells me that if anything is ever going to change here, And if we're ever going to kind of move in a direction towards equality and peace and all the things that we really need, it's going to have to be, you know, somebody different and maybe somebody a little nuts. (laughs) Uh, And I think that she would be a totally competent president. I mean, obviously, if she's the nominee, I'd vote for her. Uh, I don't think Hillary is really that person. So um, I hope New York feels the same way I do about Sanders, and about
0: Trump. Wow. And then last question, only because I ask this of everybody. You know, most folks, most writers have a music they listen to that gets them in the zone to write. What's your music?
1: Well, I never listen to music while I'm working. But the greatest agent I ever had, a woman named Virginia Barber, died recently. And two weeks ago at her memorial service, they played... Her two favorite songs, which blew me away, because they're kind of mine, too. One was Country Roads, John Denver, and the other was Nessun Dorma from uh, Turandot.
0: Wow, which Aretha Franklin just slayed Nessun Dorma at, <laughs> at the Grammys. That's how I know that one. Do you remember that when Pavarotti was sick and she stepped yeah. in? You, thought, you think Aretha did a good job with that?
1: Oh, yeah. She can do anything.
0: So much thank you to the legendary Bob Lipsight for joining us this week. And thank you to all our listeners. Thank you for sharing the show, telling friends, ranking it. All of that matters. Please continue to do so. You can follow me on Twitter at Edge of Sports. You can send us email, at slate.com. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice so you never miss an episode. Last week, we had a tremendous conversation with Ken Burns about the political legacy of Jackie Robinson and how it matters today. Go back and listen to that. Send it to a friend. Make a comment on the show. Give it a rating. All of that stuff helps more than you could know. And I just want to give a big shout out to um, our producer, Dan Bloom, who produces Edge of Sports for the Panoply Network, and our intern, Dustin Foote. We're all here in New York City together doing this interview with Bob Lipsight, and it's really, really cool. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs> Bob, that was amazing. Did you have fun?
1: Yeah, that was great.